Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft was first elected to his post in 2016. And in addition to overseeing the state's elections, Ashcroft is also a participant in that he's vying for another four years in the statewide office. Ashcroft talks about the big issues ahead for Missouri's election officials and his re-election campaign on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from the pavilion of beautiful Logan University in Chesterfield, Missouri, our guest today is... (laughs) Jay Ashcroft, Missouri Secretary of State. Thanks for having me, Jason. Uh, Thank you. This is part of our ongoing series of interviewing uh, the candidates for statewide office. We interviewed uh, Secretary of State Ashcroft's opponent, Yinka Faladi, I think about three or four months ago. And we wanted to make sure that voters also heard your side of the story as well. Why are you running for this job again? A fun fact, I think you are the only statewide official who was elected in 2016 to be running for another term in your job since uh, the governor was like Gov, the like Gov was appointed, the treasurer was appointed, and the attorney general was the treasurer. Isn't it weird how that works out? It it is funny. You know, until uh, Nicole Galloway was elected, there was a short period of time where I was the only statewide official that was elected to his position uh, because she was originally appointed. I'm running for re-election because I love the fact that the people of the state have allowed me to serve them. They've allowed me to oversee three wonderful elections under COVID where people were able to vote in person safely and securely that know that their vote would count. Um, We had uh, record-breaking turnout in the presidential preference in March. We successfully moved the April election to June. Uh, Almost had three different appellate courts in the state having different rules for the municipal elections. I was able to work with the governor and local election authorities to make sure it all happened on one day under the same rules. And then, of course, in August, we had a successful election. Uh, Your sister station out in Kansas City actually remarked on the fact that there were not long lines in the August primary out in Kansas City, even though our turnout was about 30 percent higher in August of this year than it was four years ago. I love the fact that I get to make things better for the people of the state. I even got to testify in front of Congress. They wanted someone that had run elections well this year. Um, And it was really gratifying when one of the witnesses for the opposition had to start off her answer by saying, well, actually, I agree with Secretary Ashcroft. Uh, Secretary of State's a nonpartisan position. I believe the role of Secretary of State is to look at how we can run things in the state, especially elections, especially securities, our libraries, administrative rules, business services, better for the people of the state. We've been able to do that with elections. We actually made changes to our election law back in 2018, moving up the date when people needed to request an absentee ballot, which have helped us this year when people are requesting those ballots and having to send them back. What was the old date, by the way? Um, We moved it up by a week. You have to be careful about the timing. If you move it up too, too far, then people can get caught in the middle and want to get it and can't. 
um, but we made sure that there was time for someone to get that ballot and return it so that their ballot would count. Yeah, that seemed to be very fortunate because this seems like probably the most unprecedented election cycle in modern history because of COVID. It's kind of been a lot of whiplash. Like in the, we, I was talking with you like in the beginning of March and there was this big push to like, you know, all ballots go through the mail. Uh, and we, we've talked about the difference between being proactively sent a ballot, like what the case in Washington or Oregon, and uh, you know, sending everybody an application versus kind of like what we have in Missouri where you kind of have to proactively uh, request one yourself. Where do you kind of fall on the continuum of which of those systems work the best? Well, first of all, I don't like the idea of taking away the right of people to show up on election day and vote. People, uh, at least a large percentage of people like to do that. That's their right and we should protect it. Secondly, I think that when we're worried about elections, Although it's easy to vote in Missouri now, we need to make sure that we don't do something that is easy but means your vote doesn't count. Um, when you do anything by mail with your vote, it used to be absentee ballots. This year you can use mail-in ballots. We see that about 2 to 3%, really closer to like 2 and a quarter percent of those ballots don't count. Now, that's not because of the Secretary of State's office. That's all done by the local election authority. That's because the post office takes too long to turn it in. Someone forgets to sign it. They forget to notarize it. Maybe they forget to even put their ballot in the envelope. That happens. And I believe that as Secretary of State, I should make sure that it's not only easy to vote for every registered uh, individual in the state, but also that your vote counts. And that's what I'm so happy we've been able to do. Um, let's talk about the law that passed at the end of session, setting up kind of this two-tiered process to deal with COVID. First of all, it expanded the absentee process. And when I say absentee, it means you can either mail it back, you can either drop it off, or you can go and vote in-person absentee. Right. The mail-in ballot option that you mentioned it has to be requested a certain way. I believe you can only request it in person or you mail when you request. You can't email it, which is a change we made to the law for absentee ballots in 2018 also. Right. And you also have to have it notarized and it has to be mailed back. And there is a court case now about whether you can drop it off. As of now, I'm recording this on Thursday, October 15th, the federal court is has stayed a ruling like saying you can drop the mail-in ballot off. So as of now, there's no change. If yes. you have a mail-in ballot, you need to mail it back and get it in quickly. We want to make sure there's at least two weeks for that ballot in transit in the mail so that your vote counts. Please do not wait. So the de there's been some Democrats who have been like circulating a snippet of you talking about like, I don't recommend using the mail-in ballot option. You're specifically talking about the mail-in ballot option that has to be notarized and mailed back, not necessarily like the absentee one. Is that fair to say? Or I, I would definitely say that of the four options, and, and the people of the state have four different options, and mm. we will support them and help them with any of those four that they meet and want to use, but I think the fourth option is the one where they are most prone to not having their vote count. And I believe that when people ask me, what would you say to people, I should give them the best advice possible to make sure that their vote counts, that they are participatory, and they make a difference. I always say the best way to vote is in person, either on election day or absentee in person. If you can't do that, then go ahead and use that absentee ballot. At least that way you can request it online you, or you can fill it out download it online, fill it out, email it, or fax it in if anybody still has a fax machine. And 
then you get to ballot, fill it out, notarize it if you need to, and then you can drop it off. You know your vote counts. I also remind people that we have curbside voting in this state. If you're concerned, if you're maybe because of physically impaired for some reason, you can drive to the polling place and a two-person team, one Republican, one Democrat, will bring your ballot to your car to make sure you can vote. There's a lot of disinformation. What the people of this state need to know is since 2017, really, if you're registered and you go to your polling place, you can vote and your vote will count and it'll be safe. Now, it should be noted that when the legislature passed the what I would classify as the expansion of absentee and the creation of mail-in voting that we just described. You, you put out a statement saying you did not support that bill, and I want you to explain why. Right. Uh, Senate Bill 631 was uh, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning legislation on the last day of the legislature that was confusing. It created an expansion of absentee ballots. It created all new mail-in ballots. It, it got rid of photo ID. It didn't allow us to use ballot drop-off boxes because people might be disenfranchised if we did that. I had worked on a compromise that was actually the House Committee substitute for Senate Bill 552 that would have expanded absentee ballots to make sure that anyone that had concerns about COVID would be able to vote using absentee ballots. That would have been simpler. We would have been able to use the ballot boxes. It wouldn't have been confusing for our, our clerks. It would have kept photo ID in there. Um, we had an agreement, it fell apart, and now people are confused. So I just, I do not think we should confuse people when it comes to elections. Now, the photo ID uh, situation, we talked about this a lot in 2016 because there was a constitutional amendment on the ballot authorizing the legislature to pass uh, a requirement to show a government-issued photo ID to vote. Uh, obviously, you probably have heard the counter-arguments to that from Democrats, that it's a form of voter suppression and it hurts women, minorities, yeah, and that, but, that. but I want you to respond to that because you're a supporter of that. But it's, it's patently false. Um, the data is out there. Uh, that went into effect uh, in uh, 2017. I have been fighting in courts with that. I've been talking about it since 2015. I had a little to do with getting that on the ballot. And um, in that entire time, no one has been able to point to a single individual that was impeded from voting because of that. And every major election, I can point to individuals that were able to vote because of that law. We have individuals that under the old law would have been turned away, but because we created and mandated uh, provisional ballots for people that didn't have identification, we've actually expanded ballot access. The people that are trying to overturn what that law did, that would actually disenfranchise individuals. What is the status of that law right now? I know it was substantially weakened to the point of irrelevancy. The The Supreme Court in uh, January of this year, that seems so long ago. Oh my gosh. I was just talking, by the way, not to interject, I was talking about impeachment with Congresswoman Ann Wagner, and we both honestly forgot when that happened. <laughs> and she voted in that because we are in a time soup as uh, John Oliver said. But uh, the Supreme Court uh, removed the requirement that if you use a secondary form of identification, you had to fill out a statement that you understood you were supposed to have a photo, government-issued photo idea, that the government would provide you one for free and that you didn't have one. So uh, one of the things that it did to us is, unfortunately, we no longer get a list of people that vote without an ID, so we don't know as easily who to reach out to and ask them if they'd like one for free. Um, how do you think local election officials have handled the massive increase in for the massive increases in requests for 
absentee or mail-in balloting because I think in St. Louis County they have already like gone over what happened in 2016 other jurisdictions are saying this is going to be an all-time record and I have to imagine like it's not easy to really deal with this and it's also going to cost them a lot more money to handle all of these absentee ballots. Well we're probably right now about 50 percent over absentee ballot requests than we've ever seen before. I think our local election authorities, the 116 of them, have done a fabulous job. I visited with all of them. I visited every one of them, drove over 5,000 miles in my car to deliver PPE, PPE before the municipal elections. They've done a great job. With regard to the cost of the absentee ballots. Um, we received federal funds earlier this year. We provisioned four and a half million dollars of those funds in grants to local election officials to use however they saw fit with regard to COVID expenses. We've actually held some of that money back, a portion of that, specifically because we will reimburse those election authorities for their absentee ballot and mail-in ballot costs. So that's not borne by the local counties. We will take care of that for them. I don't know if you've been following this issue, but there's like a nonprofit group that's been giving local jurisdictions money. And some conservatives have said, well, this is a scheme for ballot harvesting or whatever. But I think that the, there is an issue about whether like local election authorities can accept money from nonprofit groups to do election related things. What what do you know about that issue or am I telling you something that you can't talk? You about? know, I, I think that's obviously unfortunately everything has become politicized. Right. And um, I think anytime you're dealing with elections, it becomes even more politicized. And the fact that we're 19 days out of the election right now. Um, I'm watching that very closely, but as you know, local election authorities do not report to me. Yes. And I actually have no authority over them with regard to how they operate. I don't think that this money is being used at all to like go around and collect absentee ballots. Eric Fay told me that it's being used because there are additional expenses because there are so many mail-in or absentee ballots. And I think that other election official jurisdictions have gotten similar grants and they're using them toward the same thing. You know, I think transparency of how those funds are used, if accepted, will really help people with the fact that private funds are going to elections. Um, our office received about $1.2 million from a very similar group, I think an offshoot mm -hmm. of that same group. And we use that to send out a mailing to every household where there was identified uh, that there had been a registered voter in like the last 10 years. So we tried to make sure, and we sent out some extras, but we wanted to hit everybody uh, to make sure people knew what their options were to vote. And we appreciated being able to use the private foundation's money instead of the taxpayer dollars. We'll be right back after this short break with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. And we're back on Politically Speaking with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. And by the way, we are outside right now. So if you hear a little bit of, of wind or leaves rustling, do not be alarmed. This is how we do podcasting in the era of COVID-19. We are physically distanced outside. Oh, we are very, very distanced. Um, I wanted to talk with you about some of the other things involved with your job. One of the, one of the hot button things you often do is write ballot summaries. Yes. I want you to kind of explain how you've done that process differently and how you've kind of dealt with some of the inevitable controversies that come in with initiative petitions. Well, one of the things that we've done is we've tried to make sure that we have about 10 different people that look at ballot language. Um, actually, one of our attorneys um, has been identified in the press as a Democrat, so we try to make sure that she's a part of that process. Uh, not that we hire people by, by party, um, but we want to make sure that we have uh, divergent viewpoints uh, to look at that. We've also tried to make sure that the language 
isn't so arcane. We actually got sued a couple years ago because we used more simplified kind of vernacular in our language instead of kind of the, the highbrow language that's been used before. Was that the right to work one or was that something else? That was, uh, that was a different one. And I was really uh, pleased that the appellate court said, you know what, it's different, but we think this might be more understandable to the people. And that's what the Secretary of State's supposed to do, not put his thumb down on the scale, but give the people the facts so they can make their own decision. Yeah, and some this is, I think it's important to tell our listeners why ballot summaries matter. Um, I would be very overjoyed to know that the people of Missouri pay extra close attention to every ballot initiative and all of our coverage, but they don't. Sometimes they go in and all they read is the summary and they're like, oh, that sounds good. I'm going to vote for it or not vote for it. I want to talk with you about initiative petitions in general, because I've talked with you before about your desire about um, either either raising the threshold for like a constitutional amendment to pass or requiring more signatures. What's kind of your mindset on that? What I'd like to do, I don't want to raise more signatures. Um, it's virtually impossible for a grass, grassroots organization to get something on the ballot now. Unfortunately, it's it's the, it's the, the world of billionaires that come in and spend a couple million dollars to get what they want on the ballot. But what I would like to do is raise the vote threshold so that you know, in our, our election that we just had in August, we had about a 30% turnout. Mm -hmm. That mean, means that 15% of the registered voters plus one kind of decided who won the election, what their constitution would have. For the Medicaid expansion. Amendment. Yeah, and, and regardless of which side of any issue you're on, if we're going to put it in our constitution, I'd like it to be something that the vast majority of people agree on. I always go back to back in 2018 that people of this state voted on how long you had to be a member of the Eagles Lodge before you could hand out bingo cards. Oh, yeah. That should not be in our constitution. That's ridiculous. Well, it is. <laughs> I, I mean, it is. I, I think that some people it's interesting because there have been a lot of there, there have been people in the legislature, primarily Republicans, who have asked to do that. I think the counter to that is that and it's primarily from Democrats, but it's also from, from some Republican groups. They see the initiative petition process to get around the legislature when they won't actually do something. And by raising the threshold, you kind of take that avenue away. Like, what would you say? To that? I think what we do is we require both sides to actually campaign. Um, you know, when you do something through the initiative petition process, you don't have public debate on it. You don't have both sides. You don't have up and down votes where people are held accountable to that. You don't have a time when citizens of the state can go down and testify pro or against it, like when the legislature passes something. And I just think that, you know, our Constitution is 10 times longer than the federal government's Constitution. I think most Missourians would agree that the federal government doesn't work well, and I don't want to move us in the direction of working even worse than we are now. So th you kind of alluded to this before, and I want to use like a couple minutes to talk about the other things that you do as Secretary of State. We often associate the Secretary of State with elections and also, uh, you know, initiative petitions. But you, you, you also have you also have some role in securities and libraries as well. And, and I want you to kind of explain kind of your, your decision well, making. With regard to securities, uh, any sort of civil 
penalties and regulation of, of the securities industry and the defrauding of individuals happens through the Secretary of State's office in Missouri if it's below the level that the SEC would get involved in. So about every year, there's about 10 people that because of our investigation subsequently get thrown into federal prison and federally convicted. So we really work hard to protect Missourians from being preyed upon by unscrupulous individuals and in I that area. And I think you brought in somebody who I think it, it, there was some controversy involving that, and I well, wanted to kind of address that. The, what happened was I brought in an individual and who had worked in the securities industry, and uh, you know how partisan politics is. They claimed that there was an investigation against the company he was a part of. It was false, but I wasn't allowed to say that because we're not allowed to comment on those investigations. There was an investigation going on, and as part of that investigation, looking at one of the investors, they needed to look at his entire portfolio. So they had asked the company that this individual came from to turn over their records, which they did. They were not a target of the investigation, but it just goes to show you, you can't believe everything you hear on TV. Radio's good, but not TV, Well, that's right? what I wanted to ask you about. And does he still work for your office? He does. Yeah, and, and I, my understanding was there were, I think that there were some people on the other side of the aisle that defended him and said he was very qualified. But well, what is this person's name, by the way? Uh, it's David Minnick. He's yeah. the commissioner of securities and working with him, uh, with industry groups and other groups, we've been able to strengthen the law. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've increased the penalties. We removed some limitations on penalties. So we've actually been able to be harder against the securities industry because of his knowledge and work to make sure that people of the state can invest successfully. Well, let's talk about libraries. And for full disclosure, I love libraries. Well, I, I happen to be married to a librarian. Who That's works why at, I like you. <laughs> she works at Washington University. Um, I actually technically work at Washington University, too, as an adjunct instructor. Um, what, can you kind of talk about the Secretary of State's involvement with libraries? I've you, never, I don't think I've talked with Candor or Carnahan about this topic, but I'm genuinely well, <laughs> curious about this. Yeah, the Secretary of State's office, uh, the Missouri Constitution requires that the state provide funding for public libraries. That funding goes through the Missouri Secretary of State's office, so we provide those to public libraries across the state. We also get uh, LSTA mo federal money that comes to our office, and then we provide that to libraries. The state library and the state archives are part of the Secretary of State's office. So we work with those libraries to give them resources. We work to give them ideas and help them to do a better job of provisioning their services for their constituents. I think libraries are awesome because they unlock the potential of individuals. They serve whosoever may walk into them. You don't have to have a credit card. You don't have, you walk in, they're there for you, and it's a wonderful thing. And I can attest to this. They, libraries have been radically changed by COVID-19 just because there is an expectation that there has to be some, especially if we're talking about libraries where people go in and get books, like there's an expectation that people have to be working in a physical building. When you're talking about like a, when you're talking about a university library, for example, where a lot of it's yep. computerized, you can probably work at home. Have, what have you heard from libraries about how they're dealing with COVID-19? They've really expanded what they do digitally. We've seen libraries using the grants we've given them for hotspots so that individuals and patrons can have broadband. We're seeing libraries that have curbside pickup and drop-off where you can request materials and they'll have them ready for you. You just call in and they bring it out to you. Uh, they're uh, quarantining the material they receive back and cleaning it for a certain period of time to make sure that people are safe. When I think of libraries, it makes me, it's, it's, it's one part of education. Somehow we've, we've torn libraries apart from schooling. 
what you need to do in schools is teach people how to think logically and critically, and then you give them a resource like a library, they can learn anything they need to do to be the best that they can be. Before we talk about the campaign, is there anything that you would like to take the lead on if you're if you're elected to another term is there anything that you would want the legislature to pass that would affect your office you know one thing that i've really been working on that i don't think any secretary of state has ever done is i've started an annual retreat for legislators on education we're starting our third year of that we'll be meeting in the late november or early december time frame where we bring together leaders of the education communities and rank and file senators and house members uh, we work with a group called the Hunt Institute that brings in experts from around the country to talk, to speak on topics that the legislators request. And then we have question and answer, pro and con on these uh, different ways and ideas. Because I think that one of the failures of Missouri is not every child in the state truly has a good opportunity for a good education. I want to change that before the people of the state tell me to go bye-bye. Okay. So... Again, we had your opponent, Democratic opponent, Yinka Faleti, on the show a few months ago. He was making the case that he would be a better Secretary of State than you. Why should people choose you over him? You know, I, I would just point the people of the state to my record. Um, in the almost four years that I've been Secretary of State, our office has passed more consequential legislation than any other statewide office has. Um, we've done remote and online notary. It seemed like a dumb thing to do and then suddenly COVID hit and people said, hey, wait a minute, you were thinking ahead. We've revamped a lot of what we do with elections. We've, you know, two years ago, we allowed you to request an absentee ballot by email. Suddenly, that's a really good idea. We moved up the date for when those ballots had to be requested so you could get them in time. We've made changes with the address confidentiality program. We actually have bipartisan legislation at the U.S. Congress uh, where we have uh, bipartisan sponsors in both the Senate and the House to make sure that those individuals are protected not only at the state level but at the federal level without creating a new federal program or without spending an additional federal dime. That's the sort of thing we're going to continue to do, and it's what we have done to make a difference and make Missouri better for all Missourians. Now, from a political perspective, you were elected in 2016 on a, on a situation where President Trump won the state by 19 points. It's looking like he's not going to win Missouri by 19 points this year. I've even seen some prognosticators say that Missouri is a lean state, which means we're going back to the days of like 2000 and 2004, where it may only be five points. How do you think that affects you? I mean, I think it's difficult to defeat a down ballot incumbent, but obviously a lot of these races are kind of linked to the national environment. You know, I, I think that obviously anyone that gets into politics has, has a worrying night on election night. It's doubly worrying for me because while other people are having parties to celebrate their victory or their defeat, I'm going to be at the Secretary of State's office making sure that the election goes off smoothly, that there's nonpartisan administration of it, and if that there are problems, we're there to correct them and get a true and accurate vote count out, or at least unofficially, to the people as quickly as possible. Well, this is kind of an interesting question because you are a, a, an elected official and you have to be on the ballot and you also have to you probably want the other statewides to win how are you able to like what is there like a separate role is there like kind of like two jay ashcrofts one that has to be the administrator and one that can go out and like campaign like I, I, and this is also a question I haven't really asked other Secretary of States. Like, how does this work exactly to, as far as, like, electioneering for other people, basically? I think most of my supporters would say that I don't campaign enough. 
Um, but I took an oath to the people of the state that I would do the best job possible to uh, follow the Constitution and laws enacted pursuant to it. And that's what I do. You know, it's inscribed on the Capitol in Jefferson City that the best politics is good governance. And I think the people of the state, frankly, the people of this nation, are tired of partisan bickering. They're tired of partisan politics. They want to send people to government to get things done to make their life better, to get the government out of their way, to give them more control and allow them to be as successful as they can, their children and their grandchildren also. That's what I do. Um, I'm proud that I get to do it. I'm blessed that I get to do it. And I believe that when people look at what I've done, they'll say that's the sort of person we want in Jefferson City. My final question is a trivia question. Who is the only Republican to win two consecutive terms as governor? (laughs) <laughs> well, that would be my father, John Ashcroft. <laughs> you are correct. We'll have to see. Actually, that will not be accomplished this year. It may not be accomplished for another 12 years because the governor that was elected in 16 resigned. So the best that uh, Governor Parson can do is, a, is, a, is, I guess, one and a half terms. So there you go. It could I, happen in eight years. It could happen in eight years, hypothetically. On that note, I don't know why I ended the show that way, but I think that that's a a really interesting uh, trivia fact. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter or how can people find out more about your campaign? But more importantly, how can people find out more about election-related stuff on your website? Uh, if you want to find out about how to vote or anything like that, just go to govotemissouri.com or sos.mo.gov. That's all official. Won't tell you what to circle or check mark. We'll just tell you how to get your ballot. And if you want on the political side, uh, Twitter, just go to at jashcroftmo or Ashcroft for Missouri. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you very much for your time. And until next time, so long. Thank you.